This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton-Wells exploring the challenges in competition policy, law and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Professor Jeannie Patterson from the University of Melbourne about the impact of AI on consumers. We're seeing a market that's crowded with products and choices. We're seeing a proclivity for consumers to, in some way, delegate the decisions that they're making about simple things like chocolate and complex things like insurance to intermediaries or virtual assistants. Now, that in the short term is helpful for consumers. It gives them more time and might result in better outcomes. But there's this existential question about what delegating choice means. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. Many of you may have heard of, and some even read, the recently published book by Harvard professor Shoshana Zuboff titled Surveillance Capitalism. If not, it's definitely one for the reading list. Today on the podcast, we're talking about the very stuff of surveillance capitalism, the effects on and consequences for consumers of algorithms, machine learning and AI what risks these may pose, and how might consumer and data protection regulators respond. Oh yes, and don't worry, we do talk about the ramifications of any such regulation for competition too. These are issues that my colleague at the Melbourne Law School, Professor Jeannie Patterson, has been thinking about a lot. A hallmark of Jeannie's research in this area is collaboration with researchers from other disciplines, like computer science and engineering. So I started our discussion by asking Jeannie to share with us why she set up something called the Digital Citizens Research Network. Oh, okay. So the Digital Citizens Research Network came about because we realised that there's a number of researchers here whose field of research has led them into asking questions about what's happening in the digital space and with digital technologies. And we realised that a lot of those questions were the same types of questions. What does this mean for citizens to be faced with these new forms of power and possibility? What are the responsibilities of the government, in fact, in protecting citizens' rights in the face of these burgeoning technologies? So it made sense to us that we would come together and share some of our research insights and find some synergies in what we're doing. The network's going to hold its first major event in July. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, we're having a conference which is about citizens' rights and states' responsibilities in the face of new technologies and we're bringing together quite established researchers and junior researchers from around the world to talk about some of these issues and ideas in a three-day conference. Well, I'm thrilled to be part of it, Jeannie, <laughs> and looking forward to our first big shebang in July. So we're going to talk a bit today about the role of artificial intelligence in shaping and influencing consumer perceptions and decision-making in the marketplace, which I know is a topic dear to your heart and you have so much to share with us. So let's get on with it. But first, let's get some terminology out of the way. Algorithms, machine learning, AI, these are all terms bandied around rather loosely, almost interchangeably nowadays. There are differences between them. What are the key differences? Well, when we talk about algorithms, algorithms are just the set of instructions 
on which the AI runs. So it's an instruction on what we want the AI to do. Though, importantly, the thing about AI is that we don't have to instruct everything it does. AI learns. And that's the key factor, I think. Machine learning is a kind of AI that learns from a defined data set. We give it a data set with some instructions and it makes use of that, as opposed to more open-ended forms of learning where we can give the AI a whole load of data and it makes sense of it. So the difference between machine learning and AI, as you've explained, it lies in the type of data that is fed into the machine. That's right. It's how much we curate what the algorithms, if you like, are working on. And AI, in its pure sense, offers the most potential because it can take raw data effectively and make sense of it. Well, how about we use AI so we don't get our tongues tied? Let's do that. Tell us, how is AI being used in sales and in marketing nowadays to consumers? And in a nutshell, what are the benefits to businesses? Well, the data that firms now have about consumers, when combined with AI, allows a degree of micro-targeting or micro-marketing that could only have been dreamed about in the past. So firms can collect data from consumers' shopping habits, their online browsing, but also metadata like what type of computer they're using and where they're cited and combine this data to give them really detailed information about historical preferences of consumers, which they can then use to target consumers with the type of advertising, the type of products that they think consumers will particularly be interested in. This is personalised marketing at a level, as you said, not seen before, by building profiles on consumers that can then allow for them to be targeted so as to generate an intentional response in their behaviour. That's right. So we all know that we see way too much information online and that only some of it attracts our attention. But if firms can gain information from what we click on, how long we stay on a particular site, the type of colour, music, tone we respond to, they can nuance their advertising to respond to those displayed preferences so as to increase the likelihood that we will buy particular products, we as consumers. And what does this mean for the way in which firms are pricing their products and services nowadays? Well, this sort of fine-grained information about consumers also allows the potential for differential pricing. Some people call it discriminatory pricing as well. So this is pricing that is actually targeted at what the firm thinks the consumer will pay. Now, this may have the effect, and it's been rumoured, that people who are a little bit more well-off or perhaps a little bit more conservative Mac users, in fact, might pay more for hotels, for example. It can also go the other way. So there can be less of a Robin Hood effect, less of targeting the rich to subsidise the poor. It can go the other way where consumers who have a profile that suggests that they may have some credit risk or other risks will, in fact, be shoved out of the market or at least offered goods and services on a slightly higher price to compensate for the perceived risk that they present. And in competition law, we do, in fact, call this price discrimination, but it's hardly a new phenomenon or unique to the online environment, is it? I mean, we think loyalty programs, coupons, think about the way in which tuition fees 
charged by private U.S. universities award grants and scholarships based on financial information about parents. So it's not new, is it? Well, it's not new in one sense because marketing advertising have always sought to influence consumers' preferences and sellers have always sought to set their price as close as possible to the price point that consumers will pay. So, yes, discriminatory pricing in that sense has always been around in the market, but this is first-person discriminatory pricing. It's pricing that discriminates on the basis of an individual's characteristics, not a group, a consumer group. And it's also done, and here's perhaps the point, on factors that consumers aren't necessarily aware of and factors consumers can't control. But in the online world even, the degree to which perfect price discrimination or first-degree price discrimination is likely to be achievable is still limited, isn't it? Because the algorithm would still have to know the consumer's reservation price, the maximum price they're willing to pay, and if you think about it, there would be multiple factors, dispositional and situational variables that could affect what we're willing to pay. And it would have to be assumed that we're rational and predictable. And as many know, we're certainly not that. Absolutely. But price discrimination online using AI is not merely feeding off what we've paid in the past. It's feeding off information about the type of risk profile that we have based on a huge amount of information. So our cognitive biases, which have been kind of the wild card in marketing, can be fed into the algorithm in terms of what we're shown and what we're priced. I guess the other point too is I think consumers feel less worried about people being charged more on the basis of a capacity or willingness to pay than they are perhaps on people being charged more on the basis of less relevant characteristics. So things like race, gender, ethnicity, where they live, what job they have. So there's price discrimination that perhaps we think, well, that's part of the game, that's within the control of consumers. And there's price discrimination where we think, well, that's actually just continuing to the exploitation of people that are already marginalised. There's the famous economic theorem, the poor pay more. This is the poor pay more times 10. Well, we're going to talk about the effects, not just economic, but social effects of that type of discrimination in a minute. Any other types of usages of AI that we're observing in the market that you'd like to draw to our attention? Well, I think we've talked about personalised advertising. We've talked about differential or discriminatory pricing. I guess the other use of AI that we're seeing increasingly is AI to assist consumers in their selection decisions. So we're constantly having to make choices in the market that's very full and crowded. So naturally, consumers will turn to intermediaries to help them make those choices. So we see online comparison sites, sites that will help you choose what airline might be best for you, what hotel might be best, but also more sophisticated or complex choices like what insurance product might be best for you or what credit card. And these tools are increasingly also being fueled by AI in ways that perhaps we don't understand. And then on that continuum, we move to personal assistance. So increasingly, our home assistants, Alexa, we're not just asking to turn on the lights, but we're also saying, 
what should I do with my superannuation or should I be investing in X shares? So increasingly, I think consumers are outsourcing some decisions to intermediaries, which are AI fueled, and we don't yet quite know what's going into the recommendations that we're getting back. Right. So as you describe it, these virtual assistants are going one step further to assisting choice to, in fact, making choices for us, if indeed preempting choices we may not even know we need or want to make. That's right. And I think that's exactly identified perhaps what was the source of our concern about what we're seeing in the consumer market, that consumer choice is increasingly being channeled or funneled or narrow. So we're perhaps starting to see the line being crossed to consumers being given a range of choices that might be appropriate for them to that choice being narrowed to the point where the choice is actually being made for the consumers. This is the product for you. This is the investment for you and so on. Well, you've mentioned their concerns, but on the brighter side, (laughs) one might say that in large part, this is good news for the functioning of markets. If you think about it, On the supply side, businesses are now able to meet consumer demand with much greater efficiency and lower transaction costs, which would also mean they can compete more effectively. And on the demand side, consumers can get their needs and wants met with the benefit of more relevant information and without having to endure that decision-making paralysis that often comes with information and choice overload. And there is absolutely a bright side. Behavioural economics tells us that consumers, us, are very bad at making decisions. We can't process large amounts of information. We tend to act on the basis of various cognitive biases, including what we last read in the newspaper. So in some ways, AI offers the possibility of enhanced choice, of choices that are better in promoting consumer well-being, optimising preferences, absolutely. But I think that most consumer advocates and also scholars who work in the technology space are still somewhat concerned about this shift. And I think one of the things we need to do is try and sift through and identify what we're concerned about, what is the nature of that concern and what is just hyperbole or exaggeration. You know, the robots are coming to take our lives. I don't think the robots are coming to take our lives. (laughs) But we might want to think carefully just about AI in the consumer marketplace. Well, how do consumers themselves view these developments? Do we have much evidence on that? We have a little bit of evidence, Caron, though I'd have to say I think some of the evidence we need to view with a grain of salt because I think we need to look at who's asking the question. A survey from a marketing firm might come up with different results than a survey from a consumer advocacy group. So the most recent survey was one done by the Consumer Policy Research Centre, which is here in Melbourne, and they asked some questions to consumers. It was mainly about data and privacy, but they asked a few questions about differential pricing. And in fact, their survey repeated the findings of, in fact, the number of earlier surveys that have been done by, say, marketing firms and the like, which is that most consumers in the Consumer Policy Research Centre survey, 80% of consumers felt uncomfortable about personalised advertising. They didn't feel that this was something they wanted. And the word creepy comes up (laughs) again and again. At the same time, that survey showed that consumers actually didn't really quite understand what use is being made of their own personal data. And of course, data is the fuel for AI 
in promoting personalised advertising, differential pricing, selection tools. So it's hard for consumers to form a view on what they think about AI in the marketplace when they're not quite sure what it is that's feeding it. I think it's a difficult question to them. In the actual interview stage of the Consumer Policy Research Centre survey, we got some actual discussion with consumers. Consumers were a bit more ambivalent about personalised advertising and differential pricing. They actually, when they talked about it, could see that it might present some advantages to them, but they were worried about things like transparency and discrimination. Is that because they essentially see it, that is, differential pricing as unfair, even if they themselves might benefit from a bargain, or at least some of them? Absolutely. And one of the interesting things that we've learned from behavioural insights into consumer behaviour is consumers are actually concerned about a perception of fairness. The market isn't perhaps the battlefield that early Chicago school economics suggested. It's much more nuanced. And consumers have a concern that other people are treated fairly, not just themselves. So in fact, the focus group in the survey I've been discussing thought that differential pricing or discriminatory pricing might be good if it benefited pensioners. Right. (laughs) Vulnerable parts of the population. Yeah, yeah. So if consumers have some reservations, perhaps, as you say, we should turn to the scholarship that's being done in this area to articulate what those reservations might actually be grounded in, as well as some of their implications. Let's talk about some of those objections. Where would we start with this, Jeannie? Well, I think we'd start with a concern that somehow consumers are being tricked or exploited. So we're being tricked into buying things or even exploited if an AI tool can pick up moments when we're feeling particularly vulnerable or sad. And clearly, the regulation of the consumer market makes quite clear that we can't lie to people. We can't say to people, this is the best price in the market if, for example, our next door neighbour's getting a different price for no reason other than they live in a different house. And we can't say to people, this comparison site will find you the best product for you if, in fact, the comparison site is showing products based on a commission that's being paid by the manufacturer or producer of the product. So that sort of trickery is clearly unacceptable and, in fact, already prohibited under our existing consumer law regime and, in fact, the consumer law regimes in most countries. But I think, as you're hinting, our concerns go to something that's a little bit more subtle than just lying to people about what's happening. There's this concern about manipulation and the erosion of choice. And before we talk about that and its implications for our autonomy, doesn't this concern about trickery, as you've put it, come back to the fact that There is a lack of transparency, as you described it. Others have called it the black box problem. (laughs) Consumers are not fully aware or don't really understand how their choices are being influenced or even reduced. That's absolutely correct. Consumers, I think, now know that data is being collected about them. We've had enough in the media to tell us 
that the price of free social um, networking sites is in fact us and what information can be collected about. So consumers know information is being collected about us, but I think they don't know the degree to which information is being collected. For example, you hear consumers sometimes say, oh, well, when I'm online, when I'm using social media, I put in a false name and a false birthday. Well, you know what? You're not hidden by that information. We have what's called sometimes a online fingerprint and our interests, preferences can be tracked according to that online fingerprint, where we are, what computer we're using, when we sign on, where we sign on and the like. So there's a lot more information about us that's being collected than consumers realise. And then there's the question of, well, what's being done with that information? As you say, the black box effect what data is being fed to the AI and what has the AI been asked to do with that data? Isn't the answer to some of this at least that we should just ensure that firms have to ask for our consent before they serve us up targeted advertising or differential pricing? Yes, consent is the benchmark consumer protection that we need in this space and it does alleviate some of our concerns about this sort of unforeseen manipulation of consumer preferences. But we need to unpack consent. If we think about consent as we know it in an online forum, it's ticking a box, I consent. Consent isn't worthwhile if consumers don't know what they're consenting to. So here we might want to look to the model in the General Data Protection Regulation the GDPR, which I know you've spoken about before in these podcasts. And the GDPR requires a much more dynamic form of consent before consumer data can be used for particular purposes. So I think that's the gold standard we're looking at. Consumers have to be told what they're being asked for consent for, what are they consenting to and how that might affect them. And moreover, they need the option of withdrawing the consent if at any time they decide that in fact individualised advertising or differential pricing is not in their interest. If they want to go back into the wide world of lots of different stuff and lots of different prices. So essentially, you're advocating an express opt-in model for personalised ads or differential pricing, where consent is voluntary, current and purpose specific. Wouldn't imposing a requirement like that effectively undo the ad-supported business model of much of the platform economy? Yes, it might undo the ad-supported business, but that just means that the firms that are promoting that type of marketing need to make a good case for why they're doing it and provide a really good outcome. Let market competition take care of it. Personalised advertising and differential pricing genuinely do benefit consumers, then they should be able to be persuaded that that is the case. But on a competition analysis, isn't one quite conceivable outcome of those types of measures that you would reduce output and increase prices and consumers in the long run would be worse off because we'd end up paying for many of the services we now enjoy for free? Possibly, but I think there's a question of which consumers you're looking at and also a bigger question of the regulation and responsibilities that we need to preserve the well-being of the individual 
the citizen as consumer, as I've heard you put it, as opposed to the consumer merely as chooser. We may say that while there may be effects on price and competition by having an opt-in model, there's other social benefits that come from that and there's other social goods that we're protecting that justify that approach. Well, this is the quintessential tension between competition and regulation and the goals being served by each respectively, isn't it? And one of the problems of regulation commonly voiced in the competition arena is that if you over-regulate for consumer protection, say, you will stifle competition and more particularly innovation from which consumers will benefit in the long run. There's certainly an argument to that effect, but equally, if we have a unregulated market, we tend to have winners and losers in the consumer space. And equally, if you have a market where consumers are woefully ill-informed, that there's a significant information asymmetry, the competition argument doesn't really work because, in fact, you haven't got consumers exercising choice on the basis of merit. You've got them exercising choice on some other basis or, in this space, not exercising choice at all. And, of course, choice is absolutely imperative if we're going to get the right signals in the market for firms to compete. Let's talk more about discrimination, Jeannie, which is something we've mentioned already. Can you give us some examples perhaps to help us understand how targeted advertising or automated comparison and selection tools are having discriminatory or inclusion-exclusion effects that we might be concerned about? Yes, we've probably all heard about the problems of AI discrimination in, say, policing tools and in facial recognition tools used for security purposes, where those tools don't necessarily recognise people with darker skin tones or where they make predictions about people who are likely to commit crimes on the basis of factors we might as a society view as irrelevant. But this sort of discrimination can also happen in the consumer market and it may be intentional, it may reflect the bias and discrimination of the people who are creating the AI applications, but it can also happen in ways that perhaps aren't intentional but are equally harmful. And it happens this way, if the data that is feeding the AI isn't representative of the community, then there'll be a group of people who are just left out, who the AI doesn't cater to, can't assist, doesn't advise well. So, for example, if we're looking for recommendations about which credit card should I purchase and we're using a comparison site, but that comparison site hasn't got any data about people who are young or people who live in the country or people who are on a Centrelink benefit, then it's not going to be able to make a recommendation for those people. And they're left with either a poor outcome or a product that doesn't actually suit their needs. So why aren't existing provisions that relate to misleading conduct or improved consent processes and answer to these types of concerns? Well, certainly improved consent procedures don't answer these sorts of concerns because the problem is not about do I consent to 
differential pricing or target advertising. The problem is in actually the suitability of the product itself. The problem is not whether people opt in. The problem is that the product itself just hasn't really been designed to extend to the full group of people in society. So that doesn't really help. Misleading conduct doesn't really capture this problem of an unsuitable product because we're not misleading consumers. We're just, well, in one way we might be. It depends with the marketing that goes around that. But the real concern here is just that there's a certain segment of society that benefits from advances in AI and there's a group that are left out. And unless we make a conscious decision that we're going to make AI inclusive, it's not going to be. Are we having to look to regulation then, regulation as to how automated processes are designed and the principles around which that design is working? Yes, I think we are. And there's a lot of conversation about this idea of inclusive or universal design in AI happening around the world at the moment. It's AI ethics, I think I've heard it referred to. That's right. And the Human Rights Commission now has been looking at these questions and there's a number of groups across the globe that are thinking about what AI ethics and equity would mean in this space. I think one way of breaking down these thoughts is to think about what's coming into the AI and what's going out of the AI and think about two regulatory sites, incoming and outgoing, if you like. So incoming means that we are looking at questions of transparency and explainability. What data is being fed into the AI? What is it being asked to do? And that's to overcome the black box effect that you mentioned earlier. And certainly people right here at Melbourne University in computer science and information systems are looking at these questions of how do we make AI intrinsically or by design more transparent, more explainable. We then need to look at the outgoing as well, because merely knowing what's happening with AI, how it's making decisions or what it's using, doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Because one of the issues, of course, in consumer protection is we have bigger symmetries of bargaining power and making the individual consumer responsible for policing the quality of the products that they're purchasing or using doesn't really work. We need a regulator. We need the ACCC or some sort of data commissioner which is an idea that's been raised recently, to be keeping an eye on the outcomes so that consumers generally and our most marginalised consumers specifically aren't being done wrong by these products. In terms of the concerns in the space, you've referred to the loss of capacity to choose and you see that as, in your words, an existential threat, which (laughs) sounds very dramatic. Tell us what your concerns are here. Well, this is at the heart of it, really, Karan, which is that we're seeing a market that's crowded with products and choices. We're seeing a proclivity for consumers to, in some way, delegate the decisions that they're making about simple things like chocolate and complex things like insurance to intermediaries or virtual assistants. Now, that in the short term, is helpful for consumers. It gives them more time and might result in better outcomes. But there's this existential question about what delegating choice means. And I really wonder, choices are difficult. And I think we actually need to practice choosing to be able to choose. And if we give away that capacity, we're giving away something that's essential to what it is to be human and to live a full and fulfilling life. 
And I worry that that's a potential outcome of outsourcing decisions. I read recently in a paper, in fact, that you sent me, Jeannie, about an example of this. And it is based on the fact that algorithms will assess and determine our preferences based on our first move. So if we order a pizza online, then we're more likely to be targeted with pizza offerings, which will make us more likely to buy another pizza next time we're making an online order. And so the continuous feedback loop will keep (laughs) us essentially in our pizza parlor and really narrow down, if not make rather unhealthy, our food choices. Is that (laughs) sort of an example of the almost filter bubble effect of algorithms that you're concerned about? Absolutely. And I call this the beige effect, which is that an algorithm that informs AI acts of historical data. It's just looking in the past. It's just a prediction based on what we've done in the past. So if the decisions, if the choices that are being made for us are based on our past choices, what we're doing is, I suspect, narrowing choice. We're ruling out the possibility of synergies, of disruption, of innovation. You ask earlier, what does banning or regulating AI do to a thriving market? Well, in some ways, by retaining choice for consumers, we may be retaining the space for innovation and disruption because sometimes we need to be prompted into trying something new. And if we're just looking backwards, that ain't going to happen. It certainly would reduce the diversity and adventure in our lives. (laughs) Well, we've touched already on some of the possible solutions to the problems you've outlined. Can I ask you this Are there ways in which technology itself could be harnessed to give some power back to consumers, some self-help tools in effect? Now, if we look at what's happening in law firms at the moment, we'll see that a lot of the drudge work, Karon, that you and I probably (laughs) did in, we were article clerks or starting out as solicitors, sorting through documents, drafting simple contracts, is now being done by AI systems, which can scan documents, which can identify problematic clauses. Now, some of that can be applied in the consumer space. One of the problems for consumers contracting online is not simply the choices they're presented with, but the contract terms and conditions that are underlying those choices, certainly we can think of applications, and I know these are already in existence in the EU, which could inform consumers about which contracts were going to be fair and good for them and which contracts were quite unfair and detrimental and might in fact have even hidden costs for consumers. And what the increased use of those sorts of tools might do is actually prompt instead of a race for the bottom amongst firms competing for consumer business, but a race to the top. Firms might be able to differentiate themselves by the fact that they had fair terms and transparent processes, which would be a great thing. The other thing that we might see in AI tools is actually choice-enhancing applications instead of choice-restricting applications. I said earlier that choosing can be hard and that we need to practice it. It's not impossible to envisage that an AI tool might actually assist us in making choices by prompting us to ourselves reflect on what's important to us and what we would like to achieve in the future and so therefore open up a world to us instead of narrowing a world. Just to play devil's advocate again, (laughs) we have had a previous guest on the podcast, Michelle Gall, who talked about this phenomenon of algorithmic consumers, digital butlers, so to speak, 
which would give some power back to consumers to meet the technology that's being harnessed against or some might say for them by firms. But wouldn't that possibly lead to, in effect, a digital arms race between producers and consumers that would have its downside? And the downside would be it would, of course, increase firms' costs, which might reduce demand. And then the marginal consumers, those we care about the most with the lowest ability to pay, would be priced out of the market. So cause a problem for distributive justice. Absolutely. And I think you see this happening already in the privacy space, that well-informed and well-armed consumers have options for protecting their privacy, protecting their data, which perhaps other consumers who are less tech savvy don't have. So I think you're right. I think an arms race would be problematic in this space. That said, as I said, the flip side is that we might prompt the race to the top rather than the bottom. And the other point I'd make is that we still need regulation. When we're talking about physical goods, we're really concerned that physical goods are safe and suitable for consumers. And we actually have standards and requirements in our consumer law, as do people living in other countries, that say that goods that are sold to consumers must be fit for purpose, and they must not harm consumers. When we're in the financial space, if we're looking at financial services, we have similar standards applying in the sense that they must be rendered with due care and skill, and there's increased talk of imposing suitability standards on financial services. So it would seem to me that in the digital space, when we're looking at AI, we don't want to be reinventing the wheel, we don't want to be increasing regulatory complexity, but we might want to be looking across the market and seeing what's happening in other contexts and be thinking about basic standards of safety and suitability in any AI product, including AI assistance. So say standards for personalised algorithms that would include a principle of non-discrimination or even a serendipity requirement that would mean the the AI has to produce a certain degree of diversity in the information available to consumers? I think that's exactly what we need. And I think also a basic standard that any AI tool should not cause harm. It should not make consumers worse off. In terms of the practicality of that type of approach, can you readily envisage public regulators having the ability and the resources to investigate and analyse the ever-expanding number of algorithms being used in the marketplace and second-guess design choices by people who are really sophisticated in designing these types of tools? I think they've got no choice. I think that the expansion of AI in the market is so rapid and so significant that this is a real case for a multidisciplinary regulatory approach. So we need to have IT and AI specialists sitting with the regulators and not just sitting with the firms. But we do do this. We have many models where the market is complex and sophisticated and we've asked regulators to develop strategies to be able to audit and control those systems. Really, we're just saying the same thing should be done in the AI space. AI products should be safe and suitable and regulators should have the capacity to see what's going in and audit what's coming out. Perhaps, though, before reaching for the mandatory standards measure, would a less imposing approach be to require firms to inform consumers when they're using, say, a personalised 
price and, I think you mentioned this before, a right to withdraw. That would mean a right to be offered a non-personalised price and then have the benefit to compare, a bit like the cooling off period when we make an economically significant decision like buying a house. I think that's a great idea. And in fact, the analogy is also door-to-door sales. When people come and knock on our door and want to sell us a product, that's fine. But because the concern about door-to-door sales is that consumers being sold products in their own home don't have the benefit of a market comparison, cooling off rights attached to those products. So yes, I think that cooling off rights in the AI market would be beneficial. And I think certainly for your everyday products, we don't need onerous and rigorous regulation. But when we're talking about really significant choices like insurance, telecommunications, we might want to impose a higher benchmark, a safety and suitability on those products because the decisions that come out of recommendations about insurance, about credit, really impact on people's lives. And if we get them wrong, this is a cost to society as well. So perhaps what you're suggesting is not a blanket economy-wide type of regulation, but sector-specific regulation that would really target those areas where consumers are most vulnerable or likely to be disadvantaged. I think that's absolutely right. And to go back to the product safety analogy, we are quite robust in the way we regulate the safety of products that are being sold to children and less concerned about products that are sold to adults or people who have experience in a particular industry. So yes, I think a gradiated regulatory scheme is always important. And as you've said repeatedly, Coron, we actually don't want to stifle innovation in this market. Speaking of which, can't we just expect that these types of solutions will spontaneously emerge in the market in response to growing consumer unease about online manipulation and exploitation? Can't we expect some firms will try to take advantage of this and differentiate themselves? We can expect that and we can hope that. But given the degree of information asymmetry in the market and given the extent to which consumers are themselves overwhelmed by choice and complexity, I still suspect that in fields we deem as important and significant that we will need to have some regulatory oversight and some sector-specific regulation. And in deciding whether to regulate and designing the regulatory response, are there any particular broad-brush guiding principles that you would argue regulators should adhere to? I think the first one is something you've already touched on, and that is to think before we regulate. If we clamp down on this emerging market too heavily, we will not see developments that could be beneficial for consumers. So we need to think carefully about what we do. And I think it's really important when we're thinking about regulation to apply design principles to the regulatory scheme itself. We don't want an over-regulated system that can drive out good players and can encourage a form of regulatory arbitrage where other firms try and navigate within the regulation to find the loopholes. So I think we need to be very careful in how we design regulatory schemes. We need to be clear on what our objectives are and we need to think about both the fit of the regulation with what we've got in place at the moment. And we also need to make any rules that we bring in suitably flexible to be able to accommodate a rapidly changing market. There's no point bringing in a rule that says we're going to 
regulate this particular comparison site or this particular digital assistant because you know what? In a year's time, that will have all changed. So I'm always a fan of principled-based regulation, which can be broad and flexible and allow for change and expansion in the market. So for all its benefits in making our lives easier, AI may also have a dark side. Are we being brought down by algorithms, turned into suckers in an era of mass personalization? Clearly, there's some novel terrain here for regulators, but also a risk that the rush to regulate will have its own downside for competition and innovation. Next on Competition Law, we hear from Dr. Jorge Padilla of Compass Lexicon, about big tech's encroachment into banking. Until then, you can find links to some of Jeannie's writing on the topics we discussed, as well as the consumer survey she referred to in the show notes. And, of course, all other episodes and resources at competitionlaw.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave us a rating and review. I know I keep saying that. But thanks to the wonders of algorithms, it really does help with getting the word out. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. See you next time. <laughs>